Hey, podcast family. Can you believe it? We're coming to the end of 2021. So this being one of our last podcasts for the year, we're going to highlight an upcoming January 2022 new release from the Green Journal covering a CME article on the management of placental transfusion to neonates after delivery. Sounds fancy, doesn't it? Well, it is, and it's actually really beneficial. Ready? So let's talk about management of placental transfusion to neonates after delivery. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Some of the things that we do in medicine have terms or phrases that just sound so much more complicated or so much more cooler, I guess, than they really are. I have one that I commonly use in labor and delivery, and I think I've overused it, although it's still fresh and funny to the new medical students and new residents who swing by. Because I like to call a C-section, not just a C-section, how common is that, right? C-section. So I've adopted the term vaginal bypass surgery. It just sounds more fun and more complicated. Well, such is the title of the new CME soon-to-be-released article from the Green Journal that's going to be out January 2022 on the management of placental transfusion to neonates. So you may be thinking, just what the heck is that? Placental transfusion to neonates? Yeah, well, that's just delayed cord clamping. But doesn't that just sound so much better? We're going to perform placental transfusion to the neonate. Um, yeah, that's just delayed cord clamping. So if you're thinking, wait a minute, delayed cord clamping, didn't we already know that? I mean, we, we do that already, right? I mean, that's a thing. What else is there to know? Well, this January 2022 publication that we're going to summarize and review actually has a lot of really good data in it because there's still some questions and some different practices that are out there. Some do a delayed cord clamp for 30 to 60 seconds, while some do it until the cord stops pulsating. Well, which is right? And are there some newborns that benefit more than others? Remember, traditionally, this was done only for premature infants because that really was where a lot of the benefit was shown. But then it was extended to all newborns as long as they're clinically stable and can have that delayed time still connected to the cord. So we've learned a lot more information as the years have gone by. So this January 2022 publication does have some vital information that we're going to summarize right now. First things first, when we're talking about delayed umbilical cord clamping, we really have to remember that there's really three umbilical cord management strategies at play here. First, there's the immediate cord clamping, or what's called early cord clamping. The next is delayed cord clamping, or deferred cord clamping. And then the third is umbilical cord milking. So we're going to talk about each one of these three strategies. Now, a quick word about, quote, immediate cord clamping, end quote. Now, the college makes this distinction that there really is no immediate cord clamping. I mean, it's not like the kid comes out and bam, we've got a clamp ready in our hand and we just clamp that cord. Nobody gets immediate cord clamping because it's at least 15 to 30 seconds or so until we get things you know, stabilized and the baby in hand or put into the mom's abdomen and then we clamp. 
So when the college talks about immediate cord clamping, it makes that distinction that nothing is immediate. And the truth is, it should really be called early cord clamping. We should be using that phrase instead of immediate cord clamping because immediate implies that the cord was clamped the instant after delivery. Instead of before a specific duration of time has passed. And we know that that's usually the case, typically around, again, 15 to 30 seconds. So once again, the term early cord clamping has to do when the cord is clamped within 30 seconds of birth. All right, here's the first clinical pearl, and the college makes this a pretty hard stance. The practice of early cord clamping, remember that's clamping the cord within really the first 30 seconds of delivery, is actually not based on evidence or physiology and should be no longer considered a part of the active management of that third stage of labor, unless there's a perceived need for urgent resuscitation of the child. In other words, there's no reason to immediately place that clamp, meaning within the first 30 seconds, because there are a lot of benefits to that child. Having that passive transfusion from the placenta into the newborn compartment. Compared with delayed cord clamping, early cord clamping has been associated with an increased risk for death, an increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage, blood transfusion, surfactant use, inotropic support in the first 48 hours, late onset sepsis, and patent ductus arteriosus. Okay, so did everybody get that? There's really no place for early cord clamping, meaning clamping that cord within 30 seconds of delivery. So ACOG and SMFM just don't like that. But a quick word about umbilical cord milking, because there is data that preterm neonates exposed to milking can actually have worse outcomes. Umbilical cord milking involves the manual expression of umbilical cord blood by milking blood about three or four times down the cord at a rate of about 10 centimeters per second. Usually, this involves a section of cord around 20 to 30 centimeters in length. But there's a key study that showed that milking could be dangerous, especially in those neonates born at less than 32 weeks. Here's another clinical pearl that was called the Catheria study. K A T H E R I A, Catheria. Catheria et al. compared umbilical cord milking with regular delayed cord clamping in a randomized trial of preterm neonates that were born at less than 32 weeks. The primary composite outcome of the trial was death or severe intraventricular hemorrhage. Umbilical cord milking was associated with severe intraventricular hemorrhage in extremely preterm neonates that were born between 23 and 27 weeks. In addition, death or severe intraventricular hemorrhage was more common with umbilical cord milking compared to just regular old delayed cord clamping among preterm neonates delivered by the vaginal route. So, after publication of that article, some organizations have recommended against umbilical cord milking in preterm neonates delivered at less than 29 weeks of gestation. Personally, I don't do umbilical cord milking at any preterm baby born at 32 weeks or below. 
So the college states, compared with umbilical cord milking, a physiologic delayed cord clamping approach highlights the importance of establishing lung ventilation when placental circulation is still intact to promote left ventricular preload, which should optimize postnatal left ventricular function and promote an optimal hemodynamic transition at birth. In other words, umbilical cord milking may place too much volume quickly into the child when the cardiorespiratory system is just not ready for that blood volume. But doing a more delayed approach allows for more physiological reaction to occur. So remember, umbilical cord milking just doesn't have real good data and it could actually be harmful, especially at younger gestational ages. But it's much more physiologic to allow for a delay in cord clamping of at least 30 seconds. So remember, of our three groups, the early clamping group, and then the milking group, those two are just not preferred. So we're left with that middle group, which is the physiologic transition of delayed umbilical cord clamping of at least 30 seconds. We're going to talk about how long to do the delay in just a minute. But remember, don't do it too early and don't milk the cord, but just do physiologic delayed clamping of at least 30 seconds. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, here's another clinical pearl that can really earn you a lot of brownie points on rounds because who really knows this, right? Well, now you do. So if you're ever asked, well, just exactly how much volume of blood can actually get transfused to the child by delayed cord clamping, well, now you're going to know. In term newborns, postnatal placental transfusion can provide an additional 80 to 100 mLs of blood. This can represent about one-third or one-quarter of the neonate's blood volume. In a study by Yao et al., of about 301 healthy-term neonates that were delivered vaginally, delayed cord clamping transferred about 55% of the neonate's total blood volume. This transfer was in a stepwise manner with up to 30% of the blood volume being transferred within the first 10 to 15 seconds, followed by a short period of no gain and then another transfer of the remaining blood volume by 3 minutes of birth. And it's not just for term neonates. In preterm newborns, postnatal transfusion from the placenta can also increase neonatal blood volume. In a small study of vaginally delivered preterm newborns, delayed cord clamping for 60 to 90 seconds resulted in a significantly increased mean blood volume compared with the early cord clamping group. Ooh, now let's get into the duration of delayed umbilical cord clamping. I mean, some people really are just so adamant. I leave the cord on until there's no more pulsation. Well, good for you. But that doesn't mean it's any better than somebody who only leaves it for 30 to 60 seconds. Because there's a lot of different organizations here who have their different opinions. And the truth is, everybody agrees, leave it for at least 30 seconds. But longer than that may or may not be any more beneficial. 
Most studies in preterm neonates include durations of delayed cord clamping that can range from 30 to 60 seconds and 60 seconds or more in term neonates. Now, although current delayed cord clamping recommendations are time-based, insufficient evidence exists in preterm and term neonates to determine the optimal time to clamp the umbilical cord. Now, I do have to tell you that one of the longest duration of times recommended by a professional society is from the Association of Nurse Midwives, who state that the cord should be left on in term neonates up to 300 seconds. In other words, that's about five minutes, usually by the time the cord stops pulsating. ACOG, however, states that in term neonates, that 30 seconds as a minimum is okay up to about 60 seconds. And remember that the position of the child during delayed cord clamping after vaginal delivery really doesn't seem to matter. In term vaginal deliveries, to promote bonding by skin-to-skin contact after birth, babies can be placed on the mother's anterior thighs, the abdomen, or the chest while the cord is intact because this is safe and does not hinder placental transfusion based on weight gain or hematocrit at 24 hours after birth. In general, after spontaneous vaginal delivery, uterine contractions generate an adequate pressure gradient that facilitates placental transfusion irrespective of the baby's position. But that's with vaginal delivery. What about delayed cord clamping at cesarean section? Well, compared with research on neonates delivered vaginally, fewer studies have investigated outcomes after delayed cord clamping performed at the time of C-section. You see, in elective cesarean deliveries, there's a concern that in the absence of uterine contractions preceding the delivery, that can actually decrease the effectiveness of placental to neonatal transfusions. So once again, I'm not saying not to do it at time of elective C-section, but if there isn't those contractions present before the section was done, it's unclear if there's real benefit there, although it may not be harmful. Also, with preterm, twin, or emergency cesarean deliveries, the effects of delayed cord clamping on maternal and neonatal outcomes remains understudied. So once again, plenty of data on vaginal deliveries, but at emergency C-sections, elective C-sections, C-sections with preterm or twin gestations, the data on delayed cord clamping is just not there. Now, I don't want to leave this section without making just this personal commentary on this. At elective C-section, I totally do at least 30 seconds of delayed cord clamping. I do, because I still think that there is some benefit. Remember, not having a lot of data is different than not having any data at all. There is data at C-section. It's just not a lot of data as it's compared to vaginal delivery. All right, now as we get ready to wrap this up, just a quick word about the benefits here of delayed umbilical cord clamping in terms of neonatal outcomes. Overall, compared with early cord clamping, delayed cord clamping appears to be associated with reduced in-hospital mortality in preterm neonates. In late preterm and term neonates, compared with early cord clamping, delayed umbilical cord clamping of at least 30 seconds has not been associated, however, with a reduction in mortality. However, there's still other benefits at play here. 
overall hematological parameters, which includes hemoglobin or hematocrit, these values peak at 24 hours or 7 days. And these values are higher with delayed cord clamping in most studies. And delayed cord clamping is also associated with a decreased need for packed red blood cell transfusion. Because delayed cord clamping reduces the need for blood transfusions, it's a safe approach to increase starting blood volume, especially in preterm newborns. Also, in general, there's a tendency towards higher blood pressure and reduced need for inotropic support after delayed cord clamping. A quick word about intraventricular hemorrhage. Now, even though the data are mixed regarding delayed cord clamping and IVH, there are some studies that show protective effects against any intraventricular hemorrhage with delayed cord clamping. The mechanism of reduction in IVH with delayed cord clamping is not really clear, but it's speculated that hemodynamic stability can be better with higher systemic blood pressure and a slow decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance that's associated with delayed cord clamping. And I know, I know there's always some rebuttals that, wait a minute, you're going to increase the chance of hyperbilirubinemia by giving that kid that extra blood volume. Well, that is true. But although peak bilirubin levels can be slightly elevated in neonates with delayed cord clamping, there is no evidence of an increased need for phototherapy or exchange transfusion in existing systematic reviews. Another rebuttal against delayed cord clamping is that it's going to mess up umbilical cord blood gases when we need a good arterial blood gas result. Ah, but there's an answer to that too. The effect of delayed cord clamping on umbilical cord blood gas analysis in preterm neonates is actually unclear. In vaginally delivered, healthy, term singletons, a 2020 systematic review concluded that delayed cord clamping compared with early cord clamping does not affect or has a very minimally clinically insignificant effect on umbilical cord blood acid-base balance. Blood gas values associated with delayed cord clamping were slightly more acidemic, but they were still within the normal reference range. Limited information is available regarding the effects of delayed cord clamping on umbilical cord blood gas values in cesarean sections, however. But overall, delayed cord clamping has been associated with an increase in PCO2 and lactate in cesarean compared with vaginal deliveries. But the neonates in that cohort were still vigorous after delivery based on their median 5-minute and 10-minute APGAR scores. So in short, don't let this argument of, well, we can't get delayed cord clamping because it's going to mess up our blood gases. It does not seem to be the case, especially if it's done at just 30 to no more than 60 seconds. Another potential rebuttal comes about women who have gestational or pre-existing diabetes. And the fear is, hey, you're getting extra insulin being passed to that child during delayed cord clamping, and that's going to give the child altered glucose metabolism. But in a randomized trial of 80-term neonates, compared with early cord clamping, delayed cord clamping did not affect the incidence of hypoglycemia or jaundice requiring phototherapy. 
In other words, it was totally safe and sugars did not drop. So once again, don't let gestational or pre-existing diabetes, as long as that child is healthy at delivery and vigorous, don't let that issue, that maternal complication, defer you from delayed cord clamping just by itself. Now here's something that should come to a surprise to you, because it did to me. As we get ready to end this podcast, a quick word about delayed cord clamping in women who have HIV infection. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. You want me to do what? You want me to leave that cord connected when the mom has HIV? I mean, that's definitely a contraindication, right? Well, it's not. The World Health Organization guidelines actually recommends delayed cord clamping for at least one to three minutes among women living with HIV because the benefits of delayed umbilical cord camping simply outweigh the risks of HIV transmission. In a randomized study of 64 mother-newborn dyads, Polygony et al. compared the effects of delayed cord clamping up to 120 seconds with that of early cord clamping in term neonates delivered by planned cesarean to mothers on stable antiretroviral therapy. Neonates who received delayed cord clamping had significantly higher mean hemoglobin concentrations at both 24 hours and one month of age. None of the neonates had positive HIV PCR from birth through 18 months of age. The risk of vertical transmission in mothers not treated with antiretroviral therapies during pregnancy or with high viral loads remains unclear, however, but it would be anticipated to be no higher than in utero acquisition of the virus. And that's straight out of the CME bulletin coming in January. So let me read that once again, because that can make people a little uncomfortable. The risk of vertical transmission in mothers not treated with antiretroviral therapies during pregnancy or those with high viral loads remains unclear regarding delayed umbilical cord clamping. But, quote, it would be anticipated to be no higher than in utero acquisition of the virus, end quote. And again, just to restate it, WHO guidelines do state that the benefits of delayed umbilical cord clamping outweigh the risks of HIV transmission. Now, as we come to an end, a quick word about long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes and delayed cord clamping. Overall, robust data on the effects of delayed cord clamping on long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes are lacking. However, it does not seem, of course, to be harmful and may be beneficial. Although there are some follow-up studies that are reassuring for potential benefits of delayed cord clamping, once again, robust long-term follow-up studies in high-risk preterm and term neonates are still needed. Now, we can't end the podcast without talking about some real contraindications to delayed umbilical cord clamping. So don't lose this because this is a big clinical pearl. If you're ever asked when you would not do this or when it's not recommended, well, here are the cases. Early cord clamping is recommended in clinical situations of maternal hemorrhage, hemodynamic instability, or both, or when placental circulation has been interrupted, like an abruption or a bleeding previa, or known true umbilical cord knots. Also, if there's a cord avulsion or fetal growth restriction with abnormal color Doppler evaluation, then don't do delayed cord clamping. In many scenarios, like the non-vigorous newborn that requires resuscitation, evidence on the risks and benefits of delayed cord clamping is still lacking. 
So, it is reasonable to perform early cord clamping in these situations until more data are available. Well, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the soon-to-be-released January 2022 CME article from the Green Journal covering the placental transfusion of the neonate. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're happy that you're part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.